Do you guys know what story this image represents? Yeah, most people have heard this story of the blind man and the elephant. And I'm going to tell a version of it today that's from the Buddhist tradition. The story goes like this. The king of a locale invite all the blind men of a certain city to come and to feel an elephant. And each one of them feels a different part of the elephant. And after each one has felt their part of the elephant, the king says, well, blind man, have you seen the elephant? Tell me, what sort of thing is an elephant? So, the man who touched the elephant's head says the elephant is like a pot. Something you put a, a plant in, maybe turned upside down. This hard sort of round thing. But the fellow who touched the big flexible ear says, no, it's like a winnowing basket. You know, back in those days, you'd throw grain up in the air. The wind would blow the chaff away. It'd fall back down. It's a winnowing basket, he says. But the guy who touches the tusk, this hard, rigid element, says, no, I think it's a plowshare. The guy next to him who touches the trunk, felt a little bit like a portion of a tree, says, no, it's not the plowshare, it's the plow. Remember back in the day, a piece of wood that held the steel implement that broke the ground. The guy who touches the body says, I think it's a granary. I think it's a huge container that we put grain in. And the fellow who touches the foot and the lower leg, you can see him there, says, I think it's a pillar. And then last, the guy who touches the tail says, nope, you're all wrong. It's a brush. And the Buddha ended this version of the story this way because it's actually poking fun at preachers and scholars. And he said, just so are these preachers and scholars who are blind and unseen. In their ignorance, they are by nature quarrelsome, wrangling, and disputatious. Each maintaining reality is thus and thus. Reality is what I say it is. He closed with this ditty, Oh, how they cling and wrangle, some who claim for preacher and monk the honored name. For quarreling, each to his view they cling, Such folks see only one side of a thing. You know, it's easy in the story, of course, to poke fun, but all of us do this in one way or another. If we are encountering something that's bigger than we are, perhaps longer lasting historically than we are, if it's something that we can't go up and singularly ascertain in a moment, it's beyond our knowledge and our experience, we end up like the blind man saying, or the scholars or the preachers that were being mocked in this day, well, it's this. The thing that I'm talking about, it's this singularity. It's my experience. It's limited to what I tell you it is. But the moral here is, no, that you've only seen a part. You haven't seen the whole thing. And so you're mistaken. You don't understand what you're interacting with. Now, to the point this morning, hopefully you have a study sheet when you got in, a bulletin and a study sheet. I hope you do. To the point this morning, if you look at your study sheet there, there's a question that says this. What is the church? And just think for a minute, and just in your experience, and I'm just asking you to take places with the blind men here for just a minute. If, you, if someone asks you, what is the church? So based on your experience, and maybe your reading of the Scriptures, one thing or another, you're, you might say, well, the church is this, or the church is that. And so what do you write down there? The church is. How do I define or describe the church? Because each of us is going to have a little different experience. And each one of us might say something or nuance 
things a little differently. What would we say the church is? So, is this a church? This big, grand, old cathedral. This one happens to be in England. Is that the church? Is that building, is that structure the church? Or, Or how about this one? A little different contrast there. How about this one? This, this uh, yeah. yeah, wow. This one needs a facelift, doesn't it? <laughs> Who goes there anyway? <laughs> so, so, are those buildings, are those the church? Now you know today, popular usage of a term, and, and words change in their use over time, but somebody says a church today, a lot of times they're referring to a, a building, and I'm not trying to pick that apart, but if you read the the Gospels, if you read the New Testament, you'll see that a building is never called the church. So there's some confusion perhaps of terminology. To the, to the question, what is the church, there's actually more than one right answer. And just like those blind men, any one of us could say, accurately, the church is this. And we would be right. There's a number of right answers here. One is the church... English, our English Bibles translate the Greek ekklesia as church. And ekklesia just means out. Ek is out. And klesia from kaleo means called. So the church is this group that's called out of the world. We're called to a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And we're called out of this kingdom of darkness and death. That was a term that was in broad use before the church existed. It was, just a, it was a word that meant there's a town hall meeting. And so the the population of a city is called together and they meet there in the city square. Well, that term came to be used for the church. So it's this group that's been called out by God, called out of the world into relationship with Him. So the group is a called out group. Different, distinct from the rest of the world. If you go to 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul tells us there that the church is God's temple. It's God's temple. This would have sounded a little odd to some in Paul's day. Now remember, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem occurs after Paul's death. When this was written, Paul says the church, the individuals, remember there's no church buildings at this point. There's synagogues, there's the temple in Jerusalem, people are meeting in houses. There are no church buildings when this is written. So he says the church, when people are gathered together, those people, they are God's temple and you can imagine if you're a jew you might say well hold on paul we know where the temple is it's in jerusalem but god's dwelling on earth had been the temple in jerusalem and before that it was the tent in the wilderness do you remember what as jesus time on earth winds down listen to just a couple points related to that stone building in jerusalem as far as it being the temple of god the place where god lived in matthew 23 38 When Jesus left the temple for the last time, He said, I'm leaving your house to you desolate. He calls that structure their house, not His. Now see, before in the Gospels, He says, this is my Father's house. But now He doesn't. See, He's been rejected. Jesus is God in flesh. Jesus is Yahweh. And the Jewish nation had utterly rejected Him. So when He left the temple for the last time, He said, this is no longer My house. This is Your house. And now it's empty. And so later, in the accounts of the crucifixion, 
when it says the veil in the temple was torn, this reflected probably at least two truths. One was that, Hebrews brings this out, we were meant to understand that the veil through which you couldn't see, you know, if you stood in front of the temple, Solomon's temple, the rebuilt temple of Herod, if the doors were open and you were, you had an elevation and a position that you could see back towards the Holy of Holies, that curtain would have prevented you from seeing where God was. You couldn't have seen the glory of God in the Holy of Holies. When that curtain was torn, a person could now look through the length of the temple and see the way to God is no longer closed off. The way to God is open. But the other thing you'd see now is, when I look back now, God's not there. God's no longer in that temple. He's no longer constrained, if you will, in the Holy of Holies, where He told the Jews He would live with them in the Holy of Holies. And of course, later, and we'll mention this as we wind down, on the day of Pentecost, God takes up residence in a new temple. And it's not that building. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the church, this called out group, we are, the church is the temple of God on the earth. The new temple. If you look at passages from 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 5, Colossians 1, we're told that the church is the body of Christ. Jesus is the head of the body and the church is his, the rest of the body. Jesus is the head, we're the rest. The church is the body of Christ. And last for my short list, uh, the church is the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5 again. And, and in that, uh, this is very touching, isn't it? Because Jesus has this emotional, consuming connection to His bride. His intended this very unique love. The church is unique to Jesus in all the world. So, called out group, God's temple, body of Christ, bride of Christ. All those are true answers. The church is all of those things. This morning, where I want to hang our hat, though, is in 1 Timothy 3.15. This is another place where Paul describes, defines the church. And Paul wrote this letter, 1 Timothy, to his protege Timothy, who's in the city of Ephesus. And I'll mention a little bit more in a minute. But as he's writing this letter to Timothy, in chapter 3, he says, Tim, I, I'm going to come and I'm going to see you shortly, but if I'm delayed... I'm writing so that you'll know how to conduct yourself, how you are to behave in the church of the living, the church, which is the body of Christ. Let me read this, sorry. The household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress or support of the truth. And the term there that says household is the Greek term oikos. That means a building where someone lives. It's a structure where someone lives. So, Paul is saying here, it's similar to the temple, the church is God's house. It's the structure on earth where He lives. He inhabits the church. It's His hangout. It's where life takes place. He also says secondarily, the church is the place where truth is known and upheld like a pillar that holds up a building. The church is meant as God's house to uphold the truth or it's a foundation that the truth sits on substantially. So that the church is God's house, it's where He lives, and it's where someone can come and find the truth. The truth is there in God's house. We're starting a series this morning through the book of 1 Timothy. And, and guys, I won't do any more than really just introduce the concept. We won't get into the text per se, other than this singular verse. But... 
Paul writes Timothy, and Timothy represents him in Ephesus, and Paul wants Timothy to know what the church is. What is the church? And what life in the household of God is meant to look like. What does life in God's house look like? What those in God's household are meant to be about. And all of this is around, and it's because of the truth of the Gospel. Who was Jesus? What did He do? And what does the Gospel lived out require of you and me? What does the Gospel lived out and applied require of the church? Let me give you just a little bit of background. We don't know for sure when Paul wrote this letter. It's not dated, but it's probably around 65 A.D. After the last chapter of the book of Acts occurs, Paul's released from prison. We know he's released. He's rearrested later before he's executed. But it's guessed around 65 A.D. And when Paul writes to Timothy at Ephesus, hopefully you guys can see that there on the, uh, the border. There's a little red arrow pointing to it. But Ephesus at that time was a seacoast port city. It was about 100,000 people. It was a big, bustling, wealthy place in modern-day Turkey. Today it's inland because the river is silted in. It's no longer ancient. Ephesus is no longer on the coast. But it was a big, bustling city. And Ephesus was a place that the Lord spent a lot of time and focus on. So if this letter was written around 65 A.D., Paul is actually addressing the same church that he'd already written around 62 A.D. So the letter to the Ephesians is written to the same group. And if you remember there, when if you read the epistle to the Ephesians, most people consider it sort of a high watermark of the letters because Paul is bringing up all this, these heavy themes. God's electing love. God's kindness towards us in Christ. These great prayers in chapter 1 and 3 about may the eyes of your heart be enlightened that you may know all that you have in Christ and all that Christ has in you. And, and Paul says in chapter 3, there's a mystery that God hadn't told the world what was, He was up to in the church, which is going on now. No longer Jews and Gentiles separately, but one new group, one new entity, the church. All of this was in Ephesians. And they'd received that three years earlier about. So now he writes the same group and he tells Timothy, these guys are wrangling about their disputatious scholars and preachers. They're wrangling about all these things that are of no substance, that don't matter. So after getting this high water mark of the epistles, three years later he's writing them and they're just wrangling about things that don't matter. Now it's interesting too, Jesus addresses this church again 30 years later. That's a generation later. What was the effect? This is Revelation chapter 2. The first letter of the seven letters to the churches, Jesus speaks to the same church again. And I love it there. You know, in each of those letters, he, he commends what can be commended and He reproves what needs to be reproved. But 30 years later in the 90s, to this church, He says, if there's one thing you guys do right, it's doctrine. You get truth and doctrine right. They had other issues that they needed to be challenged over, but they got the content of the Gospel, the truth, right. So they apparently listened and passed on that truth to others. You know, in the Old Testament, God gave the Jews instructions. This is uh, Herod's temple. About how they were to behave in his house. So if you read your Old Testament, if you go back to portions particularly of the books of Exodus and Leviticus, you'll get all these instructions. Uh, Leviticus especially bores us to tears, most of us. It's a hard book to read through because it has one punctilious point after another about do it this way, do this, don't do that, don't do it that way. 
So in those places, God told the Jews related to the place He lived, His house, He told them what was required to approach Him. He said, I'm holy and you're not. And you can only approach Me this way. God told them how they were to worship. They didn't invent worship. God says, this is the way you are to honor Me and worship Me. God described the manner in which His house was to be built and maintained. You see, all that, God's directions about His house and His people's relationship with Him in the Old Testament, in the law. Well, guess what? You get to the epistle to Timothy, 1 Timothy, and guess what God's doing again? He's telling us how we're to approach Him in His house. And He's telling Him how we're to worship Him. That we don't make this stuff up. He's telling us how to worship Him. He's telling us what loving care in and of His house looks like. Same thing. God says, my house, these are my house rules. This is the way people conduct themselves in my house. By the way, it is his house, it's not our house. You know, when I was a young man, and I had my own idea about life. And it was contrary to my dad's view of life. And what I did and how I did it. And so my dad clarified things for me one day brilliantly. He just said, son, if you don't like the rules of this house, there's the door. See, it was his house. It wasn't my house. It was his house. So I swallowed hard, humbled myself, and kept his rules, and was really glad I did later. This is God's house. Now, it's our house because we're part of his family, but we're not the ones who determine what life in his house is meant to be about. God determines that, not us. I want to... uh, I was preparing this message, and I was actually going to get through the first seven verses. How do you like that? What's this guy doing? He's looking down his nose, isn't he? And as I, was, as I was working my way through, I realized that I really want to address an attitude that I, I would feel negligent if I didn't. Because my hope is that, you know, all of us bring lenses to what we hear and see. So what one person here this morning is hearing will be a little different than someone else. And it's because of our presuppositions. Uh, Guys, we have attitudes, we have thoughts, we have beliefs that we haven't even investigated. For some of us, they are unconscious. We're not even aware of them. And I think that in the culture and the time that we live in today, there's a, there are presuppositions about God's house that we need to be aware of so that we can address them, so that we can hear what God wants us to know about His house and His church. And one of the things, and a key thing for me in our day and time is this. it's become popular for Christians to look down their nose at the church. And the mentality is something like this. God and me, we're tight. I'm good, God's good. But the rest of you have issues. I'm good, and you call yourselves Christians in the church, but I am disassociating myself from you because I don't like you, or I don't like some aspect of you, or frankly, you embarrass me. So I'm looking down my nose at you, because Jesus and me, we're tight, but I don't know about the rest of you. This is an entirely unbiblical view. You can't get there biblically, but it's where many in the church reside today. So let me just give you some examples. Now my examples are broad. So, and we'll end up with a poll here, and so that's why I want to start very broad. When I'm talking about the church and the way the church is viewed by the world today, I'm talking about all that calls itself the church, whatever stripe 
that is, okay? So if we start, if I'm an unbeliever, if I'm just Joe Schmo and I'm living my life and I'm not a Christian and I'm thinking about that church, it could be anything, right? Almost any aspect of religious nature. So in the Roman Catholic Church, guys, we are years into a problem that just will not go away for them. And it is a horrendous, horrendous history they've got. So priests abuse, sexual abuse of children that's gone on for decades, and it's gone on protected by church hierarchy, and this dark, evil secret has been seeping out. You know, you can't contain secrets very long. And the Roman Catholic Church finds itself in lawsuits all over the world because priests with church knowledge have been abusing children. And can you imagine if you're, if you're irreligious and you hear that the most recognized church in the world is accused and now confesses its guilt that this is the way we've treated children in our care for decades and known about it? People are reeling like, you've got to be kidding. I don't want anything to do with that. You know, Jesus said, better that a person drown with a stone around their neck then they stumble the faith of a child. That's exactly what's been going on in the Roman Catholic Church. Is somebody in the, the culture horrified by that? Absolutely. You know, if you're from a historic Protestant denomination background, some of this has occurred in, in those settings as well. But generally, from a different uh, take, historically the, the, the well-known Protestant group started with strong historic orthodoxy and orthopractice. They believed the truth. They taught the Bible. They evangelized. There was substantial spiritual meat to be had at those tables, as it were. But if you look around today, what's happening to those historic Protestant denominations by and large? If you, if you just look at the states, they're all dying. They're slowly dying. And why is that? Why would they be meaningless to me if I'm just a guy in the culture? Because they're very little different from the culture. They're religious. Why would I go there? They're affirming everything the culture affirms anyway. There's no substantial spiritual meat there left. There's lukewarm soup, and I don't have a taste for lukewarm soup. Why would I go there? I have better crowds to find than in those churches. Now, evangelical groups, and that would be ours, evangelical groups have issues too. Now, <clears throat> you know, God says that man looks on the outward appearance, but that God looks on the heart. And friends, I'm convinced that the evangelical church today, we're so carnal because we're judging success by outward appearances. And success now, and, and please hear me, what I'm not, don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. I think we're too easily impressed by big buildings, by large membership numbers, by the social, political, economic status of our members, by performances in church services that rival anything you'd see on TV, and that our measure of success has become man's carnal measure of success. It's all the externals. Now what I'm not saying is, I am not opposed to big buildings, or to great worship, or to lots of people. I want the churches should be growing. Like families having kids, the church should grow through evangelism. I'm not opposed to any of this. The issue becomes this are the numbers is the structure our measure of success if it is we're no different than the world around it's just whatever money will buy is success 
And to the degree that the evangelical church has bought into that, we become just like the culture around us. We're just another variation on the theme. So I think, I think by and large, many of us in the church, certainly many people outside the church, we're looking down our nose at God's house. And let me close with this one. This is the last. I had to add this late. This, this poll just came out last Monday. This is Pew Research from last Monday. This was a poll that was taken just the end of last year. There were a number of questions. You can go online and if you do Pew Research poll, it'll bring these up and you can check. There were se- several questions on here, generally to the effect of, does, does some entity or does some group of entities, is their effect on the culture positive or negative? And so this was the question I'm honing in on this morning. Are religious institutions having a positive effect on the way things are going in the country? So if you can see this graph, yeah, you guys, well, so the, start on the left side, the lower three are demographic group. All of them are demographic groups. So World War II, Baby Boomers, Generation X. To the question, do religious institutions have a positive effect on the culture around us? All of those are going up slightly. Yes. Now this, this poll reflects from 2010 to 2015. 2010 to 2015. Do you notice the anomaly up there? It cuts across every group, doesn't it? Do you know what group that is? That is the millennial group. In five years, uh, people born after 1981, in this study, in five years, they went from saying 73% saying that the religious institutions have a positive effect on the culture to 55%. Guys, this is in five years. This demographic has said we don't think religion has a positive benefit to our culture or our life. That's almost 20% drop in five years. The millennial group. Now, now please don't hear me castigating millennials either. You know, about a third of this church is millennial generation. We're for the millennials. We want the millennials. We try and be intentional in this church about passing the baton of faith and the torch of faith to successive generations. We don't want this group or this building in the future, to be dead and empty. We want to pass the baton of faith, very intentionally so. What's happened? Joe Carter, who writes regularly for Gospel Coalition, I think he's spot on on this, says, it's no coincidence that this has dropped, this number in the millennial group has dropped, when the same group at the same percentage rate approves of same-sex marriage. Same-sex unions. Joe Carter thinks, and I, and I agree with him, the reason these numbers have dropped precipitously is because millennials, by and large, they have, forgive me, they have drunk the Kool-Aid. They have imbibed the spirit of the age, the zeitgeist, and that means that the view of God, that God is like me, and there's nothing new about this, by the way. God is like me. God's a nice person. God wants me to be happy. God wants you to be happy. Whatever makes you happy makes me happy makes God happy. Now, the culture, this, this aspect of the culture has drunk that Kool-Aid. And it takes people to hell. It leaves them separated from God forever. I, I'm not just, I don't want to throw stones this morning. I want to recognize this. This group demographically looks at the church and says, no thanks. And so what I would suggest this morning is the church has a task to take up to say we need to show this generation why these presuppositions don't work. 
why they aren't true, and that God, in fact, has a better way. God's view of life in God's house actually gives life. And this view of we are our own gods, we determine what humanity is and isn't, we determine what marriage is and isn't, it's a false view. It can only produce death, but this group demographically has not seen that yet. And so they also are looking at the church down their nose. There's a lot of work we have to do as the church in this area. So that's one thing. Are are there reasons to castigate the church today? Absolutely. And guys, this is just the church in the West. If you go to Africa and go to the East, lousy theology, unbiblical leadership, immorality. Is the church a mess? Is there a reason for people to look askew at the church? Absolutely. Not denying any of that. But let's make this personal. So let me ask you, and I'm going to so run short of time, so we'll run through as much of this as I can. Let me ask you, so if I'm talking about your family member, and I say, you know, your sister's pretty ugly. How do you feel about that? If I say, uh, your brother's pretty stupid. And of course, my nose is like this as I'm saying this. If I say, your spouse needs to lose a few pounds or get a facelift. Your children need remedial education. Again. That was a joke. Remedial again. And again. How would you feel? I hope you'd be insulted for the right reasons. See, because generally, this is still true, don't you find that you have a loyalty? You have a loyalty to the members of the family you grew up with. So that if someone talks them down, even if what they say is true, you don't disassociate yourself from your family member. Those become fighting words. I'm going to defend my brother or my sister, or my spouse. Because we have a loyalty. We are tied to them. And guys, this is as it should be. This is the deal. That sense of loyalty that we have towards those in our families of origin is meant to be applied and multiplied to brothers and sisters in God's family and God's house. And that is what you see absolutely not taking place. So when you read in the Gospels, remember the accounts where Jesus' mother and siblings come to get Him? And they say, hey, your mother's here, your siblings are here. And do you remember Jesus' response? He says, who's my mother, my brother, my sisters? They're those who do God's Word. He takes the loyalty that's part of our families of origin and now He applies it to the members of His spiritual household. And guys, that's what we do not do. We look down our nose at other Christians who aren't up to our standards. You can't get away with this biblically. These are brothers and sisters in Christ. These are members of God's household. Let me run down really quickly. I'll mention briefly, I knew this would happen. There's just too much to cover. Uh, When you see Jesus, you remember that Jesus died to save us. Jesus went to death and back to save us. Do you think Jesus loves His church? Jesus loves us. Jesus loves His church. Is Jesus blind to our faults? Absolutely not. Does He love us anyway? Absolutely. 
So when you, just as an example, if you read the letters in Revelation, Jesus addresses, commends and reproves each of those seven churches. Guys, he gets to the last church, Laodicea, and everybody that reads these knows, Laodicea, they're the lukewarm church. They think outward appearances equals wealth. You know what? They're a lot like us. They say, we've got the stuff. We've got the buildings. We've got the gold. We're dressed slick. We look good. And Jesus says, not quite. You're really wretched, poor, blind, miserable, and naked. But what does He say to them? He says, those I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. He lovingly says, you've got issues. Here they are. I need you to repent. He doesn't throw them away. He doesn't name call. He doesn't throw rocks. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. This is not a verse about salvation. Please don't read that in. Paul says the church is God's house, God's temple. And when you are at work to destroy God's house and God's temple, you're going to find severe repercussions in your life. And friends, I think lots of us as Christians, we are pulling down God's temple and God's house instead of building it up. There was a glory in the old temple. This is out of 1 Kings. You can read this later. This is from chapter 8, verse 10. When Solomon's temple got built, they moved the Ark of the Covenant in before the priest could get out. God's glory filled the temple. So forcefully, it, they fled out into the temple courtyard. And what happened on the day of Pentecost to those disciples in the upper room? The Holy Spirit came on them just like in 1 Kings. So forcefully, what did it do? It forced them out of the church into the streets of Jerusalem and they proclaimed the glories of God. Same thing. The church is God's house. Pentecost. Well, let me close with this. The reason to be impressed by the church, to love the church, is not big buildings. It's not large expanding numbers of members or the quality of members. It's not programs. The reason to be impressed by and love and give our lives for the church is because it's God's church. It's His house. It's where He lives with His family. So, for the blind men, the king's asking us the question, what's the church? There's a number of right answers, but it doesn't mean any less than this. The church is God's home. The church is our home. The church is the place where life takes place. It's the home we invite others to and the place we hang out. The Father claims the church. The Son loves the church. The Spirit indwells the church. And for those reasons alone, we should love and serve, live and die to glorify God in His church. Father, we humbly acknowledge before You today that You are God. Lord, we confess that in the way we have considered You or Your Word or the way we have looked down on brothers and sisters in Christ that we have dishonored You. And Father, would You ignite, would You inflame in us Your love for Your church, for Your body, for the members of Your household in such a way that we glorify You. In Jesus' name.